Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, and we are grateful for the many ways that you guide us with your loving hand. And we continue to depend upon you more than anything else. We, we pray that you would uh, foster a sense of, of health and safety within this congregation, a, a continued sense of humility that lives out Philippians 2, not just in how we navigate a pandemic, but how we serve one another, how we give of ourselves so that we can continually look to the interest of others above our own. Father, we know the only way that that, has happened, or that is possible and ever happens is by your Spirit. And so fill our hearts with your Spirit now, God. Help us to feel and understand and know your presence by the reading of your Word. God, may it become living and active once more that it would refine us and shape us and change us and mold us into the people that you desire us to be, that we could truly feel and experience your power here in our midst. Father, we love you. We commit this time to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. We got a lot to get to today. We are headed to a new city. We finished our discussion on Ephesus and Smyrna, and now we're headed to Pergamum. And as you're turning to Revelation 2, let me just give you a quick introduction to the city of Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum is, is very similar to Ephesus and Smyrna in that it was also known for its wealth and its beauty. All right, that kind of tends to be a common trend. We'll see that, that these letters that are being offered to these churches in the book of Revelation seem to be influential and affluent and, and beautiful and all those different things. I, for those of you that love mental pictures, I thought I'd bring a map today to show you kind of the geography of what we're looking at. Were we able to get that loaded by any chance, Ryan? All right, so the map, ah, perfect. Uh, you can see the direction we're going. We started there in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. We're walking up north. This is a little bit more inland. Uh, it's about 65 miles north of Smyrna, and then we're going to make our way around to further cities that are inland here uh, in the ancient Roman world. And so uh, Pergamum, while it's similar to Ephesus and Smyrna, does have one at least distinctive quality that you find a lot of uh, historians pointing to, which was this significant library that they built. It was the second largest library in the ancient Roman Empire, second only to the one in Alexandria, which would have been tough to beat. And so the way it, it actually began is uh, King Eumenes II decided to build this library to rival the one in Alexandria. And then King Epiphanes of Egypt uh, got wind of it and decided to blockade all exports of papyrus to Pergamum. And so next thing you know, you got this, this city of Pergamum ready to build this huge library and they don't have any papyrus to do it. And so it led them to become innovators. And this is where they developed parchment paper. This is where we get parchment paper, which is a word that's actually derived from Pergamum. So a little food for fat for you today. And, and so that's where they kind of became known. And, and in particular, I think what you could deduce from that is that this seemed to be a city that loved knowledge, loved reading, loved new ideas, loved literature. And that, that would maybe be one of the distinctive elements of this city of Pergamum. But if we're going to consider descriptions of the city today, maybe more than looking at what historians have to say, let's look at what Jesus has to say, because as we look at this letter, we'll find a very interesting description about this city. So we're going we're gonna to look at verses 12 through 16 today, uh, and then we'll finish off looking at verse 17 next week. So follow along, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, 
who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. <coughs> All right, so very interesting letter here written uh, to the church in Pergamum. And when you think about descriptions of the city, Jesus offers a very chilling one when he says to this church, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but that sounds like a pretty sobering and terrifying description of a city, especially if you're a church, right? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, what is it about the city of Pergamum that led to this sort of description and this sort of identity? Well, it's hard to, to pin down definitively, but at least two things we could likely deduce based on what we know about this time period. The, the first is the common thread that we've seen in every other Roman city at this point in time, which was it was uh, absolutely rampant with pagan worship, right? So you, you saw, once again, temples of so many different Roman gods, be it uh, Dionysus, uh, be it uh, Athena, you, you name them, right? They had numerous pagan gods that they would worship. There was another center that was focused on the worship of the imperial cult, right? Emperor worship in particular. And so you, you see that, and as a result, there is a constant environment of, of idolatry. But one, one aspect in particular that seemed to be unique to their practice of idolatry, or maybe not unique, but at least stood out in terms of the city of Pergamum, was back uh, in, in 230 BC, the residents of Pergamum defeated these Celtic tribes. And that victory became a very significant event in their history. And so they commemorated that victory with the construction of this altar to Zeus. And, and I believe that parts of this altar were actually preserved and are now in a museum in Berlin. But you had this altar of Zeus. And according to one scholar that I was researching, uh, it was common to see the practice of human sacrifice at this altar. Now, the, the, the rumors and the ideas that ancient Rome practiced in the the act of human sacrifice is actually pretty well documented. It's, it's been uh, supposed, it's been tried to be verified and believed, and, and some say, well, no, that's more myth. Some say, no, it actually happened. There was an archaeological discovery in 2016 of some human remains of somebody that appears to be like a young male on one of these altars. So even archaeologically speaking, it seems to suggest that human sacrifice was at some point a practice. And so if you, if you uh, kind of make that deduction for Pergamum, you can see that the, the level of pagan worship that existed in that city elevated itself to a potential level of human sacrifice, which could add to one of the reasons Jesus is looking at the city saying, this is where Satan has his throne. But in addition to that, when you think about being a church, being a believer, and declaring loyalty to Jesus in that environment, it was going, any loyalty to Jesus was going to provoke hostility. And so the other reason that we can identify this as being a place of Satan's throne is the hostility that was directed towards the church. And so in the midst of that hostility, what Jesus says is that here you are living in this very hostile environment, and yet you held true to my name. You did not renounce your faith. Now that word renounce is pretty important. It means to, to reject, to abandon, to leave. 
And so he's saying, despite all of these threats, all these pressures, you didn't abandon me. You didn't reject me. You didn't leave me. Your faith remained strong. And so in that affirmation, you and I can read a letter like this and be reminded of how important it is to hold true to the name of Christ, to the faith that we have in Jesus, and to not renounce his name. And it's an important reminder because I would be willing to bet that more often than not, many of us are going to go through different seasons in our life where we're going to be confronted with a situation or a circumstance where our faith is tested or we're tempted or we're, we're led into a potential renunciation of Jesus. A moment where, where we maybe reject and abandon our loyalty to him. Now, what I would say is that typically in our context, it's, it's less an outright rejection and oftentimes more just I'm going to conceal what I actually believe and what I actually feel. The way I, I kind of see this playing out in today's setting tends to somewhat correlate with the, the uh, identified cancel culture that we all live in now, right? And, and if the idea of cancel culture is that if there's something that is not socially acceptable, right, then the mob mentality of society will identify it and essentially through a lot of times uh, social media, public platforms create a public shaming that has some pretty intense consequences. People have lost jobs. People have, uh, you know, had their reputation attacked. There are a lot of different examples of this taking place in our culture. And, and so in some ways, it's accountability, and it's, and it's a good thing, and in some ways, it's an excessive thing. But what you can deduce in our context is that Christian ethics and the idea of being a Christian is, is not truly socially acceptable, right? It's, in, it's increasingly socially unacceptable. And so we live in an environment now where there are scenarios and situations that if you were to identify as Christian or a Jesus follower, it could result in some form of public shaming and ridicule and could be costly. And so as a result, I think there are increasing chances that we are going to find ourselves in situations or circumstances where we may be hesitant to reveal our loyalty to Jesus and rather prefer to conceal it out of fear of what this cancel culture might do to us. And so when we read a church or a letter to a church like this one, we need to be reminded that what Jesus affirms and desires in us is to not conceal our loyalty, but to reveal it, to hold tightly to his name no matter what. And that should be the practice not just of us as individuals, but us as a church. I want us to be a church that understands what it means to hold tightly to the name of Jesus, to demonstrate that loyalty to him no matter what. That's how you begin to truly see the power of God move within a congregation and move within our lives. And, and yet think about the increasing pressures that were faced here to the church in uh, Pergamum, right? Because when we think about these pressures from cancel culture is, is Realistic as they are, they're not near to the level of intense of what you see in Pergamum, because here you can see that it was actually costing people their lives. We have the first reference to a very specific martyr, right? You held fast to my name, you held on to my name, you didn't renounce your faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was killed in the city where, where Satan lives, my faithful witness. That's interesting, because we were able to deduce by looking at the context in Ephesus that there may have been a threat of persecution that would be 
able to cost you your life. We looked at Smyrna and we said, you know, if you're held in prison, a lot of times you're held in prison just to await execution. And so maybe there were some folks that could be facing death there. But here in Pergamum, we get a very direct reference to one of the first martyrs by name, Antipas, my faithful witness. Side note, what would Jesus say about you? If he were to refer to you by name, what would be the description that follows? Would you be able to to carry that same level of affirmation, faithful witness? Is your loyalty constantly on display? How would he refer to you? Antipas clearly uh, demonstrated what it means to maintain that loyalty even in the most intense situations that cost him his life. He was a faithful witness. The word witness there is where we get our word martyr. It was a word that originally was meant to refer to those who would testify in a court of law. Uh, But what was interesting is that a lot of times as people would testify in a court of law, they would end up being killed for their testimony. And so it almost became synonymous over time to where it then developed into those who testify and are killed as a result of their testimony until eventually it just progressed to being a martyr. That you were just one of those who who were persecuted for what you believed or what you testified about. And so it's an interesting progression. And it is is one of those things that to me, when we read it, I think merits another important question that coincides with this question about are we willing to to, uh, demonstrate our loyalty to Jesus, not not just renounce our faith to him, but, but really to begin to ask ourselves, are you willing to die for what you believe? Now, whenever you ask yourself that question, if you're like me, It's hard for your mind to not automatically gravitate to, well, in what scenario would that happen? Right, and it kind of becomes hard to imagine in in our context, right? Can I even imagine a circumstance where I would have to give my life for Jesus? And that seems somewhat elusive in our culture, right? But I still think it's an important question because it helps us assess our faith. It helps us assess our loyalty, our devotion. Would you truly be willing to die for Christ? You have that sense of resolve, that sense of conviction and loyalty. Even in the most difficult circumstances, how deep does that loyalty really go? See, what we we have here in this opening part of this letter to Pergamum is this church that understood what it meant to be faithful, even the most extreme circumstances. He affirmed it. He encouraged it. And that's the same sort of loyalty that we would want to demonstrate as well. Now, what's interesting, much like all these other letters to these churches, as great as this affirmation was, there was a word of concern, right? There there was a hesitancy. There was a verdict that was offered against this church. And he says, yet this I hold against you, right? There are some among you who are holding on to the teachings of Balaam, some who are holding on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is interesting because we have, again, an appearance of the Nicolaitans, which we saw in Ephesus, but a very different description here. In Ephesus, they actually hated the practice of the Nicolaitans. But here in Pergamum, they've embraced it. So two churches with two totally different reactions to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And as we said when we talked about it, uh, when we were talking about Ephesus, we don't really know many details about uh, this group, what they taught. We just, we don't have that sort of history other than what's mentioned in Revelation. But what we can deduce from this context are a couple of things. One is that it probably was somewhat similar to the teachings of Balaam, which we're about to get to. And the reason we can say that is because they seem to have produced similar fruit. 
and, and kind of had manifestations, same, same kind of sinful behaviors that were a result of these teachings. So let's, let's consider the teachings of Balaam. Uh, I don't know the last time you've done any sort of Old Testament history, but Balaam is a notable figure in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Numbers. Uh, it really kind of ranges between Numbers 22 through 31, but with a high concentration in Numbers 22 through 24. So let me, let me give you a summary real quick, okay? Uh, God's people have been brought up out of Egypt. They're being led by Moses. They're going through the wilderness, and they're defeating different nations and armies along the way. And so here they are in the area of Moab, and Balak, king of Moab, is concerned. He is terrified of the Israelites. And so he calls Balaam, and he says, why don't you put a curse on Israel so that we might be able to survive? And Balaam is like, look, I can only do what the Lord God tells me to do. And he says, all right, we'll put a curse on him. And then Balaam looks at him and he blesses him. And Balak gets all frustrated. He's like, why'd you do that? I asked you to curse him, but you blessed him. He's like, hey, I told you I can only do what God told me to do. And surprisingly, Balak says, well, let's try again. And he takes him to a new area and he shows him another part of Israel's army. He's like, all right, curse them. And he's like, I'm gonna bless them. And he's like, why'd you do that? And it happens three different times. It's really interesting if you really think through it. But so three different times, Balaam blesses him. And you read Numbers 22 through 24, and you kind of walk away with this impression like, okay, well, Balaam just seems to be obedient, just says what the Lord tells him to say. But then something very interesting happens in Numbers 25. Let me read to you just this excerpt from Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. <coughs> so the Baal of Peor is the highest mountaintop in Moab where Baal was worshipped. Baal's a, an idol, right? A foreign god. And so Israel is led astray into sexual immorality and idolatry. And so the leaders that were led and enticed into this sinful act were all killed. And then there was a plague that swept through the Israelite camp that led to 24,000 additional people dying. So it was horrific. And, and so Moses then sends out the army of Israel and says, go and defeat the Midianites for retribution for this thing. And so then the Bible says they all go out and they kill a bunch of people, including Balaam. And you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Didn't, did Balaam get caught up in some crossfire? Like, what happened? And so in the midst of them killing everyone, they bring back uh, some of the prisoners from this attack and then Moses says this, he says, you've allowed the women to live, but they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck down the Lord's people. I think that's in Numbers 31. So what we discovered there is that Balaam was behind all of it. We don't have the details of how he led him into stray, but, but then you see this very negative connotation associated with Balaam to the point that even in 2 Peter and in Jude, he is referred to very negatively in rabbinic literature. Balaam was seen as the opposite of Abraham. So when you read this letter to this church, and it says you follow the teachings of Balaam, that would have been an immediate cause for concern. Because Balaam was the one that led people of Israel into this horrific sinfulness. And it seems that the commonality, based on what we know about the history of Israel and Moab and what took place in the book of Numbers, and what is now being addressed here, that what these teachings, be it to the Nicolaitans or to the Balaam, all have in commonality is this thread of sexual immorality and idolatry, right? So you see it there in the, the letter to the church in Pergamum, right? It led to food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. The, the food sacrifice to idols description always seems a little interesting to me, like, 
What does that mean? Like they ate bread or what? Like what would happen? And so to understand the context, uh, at this point in time, it was very common for you to go and per- to the temples, right, where you would worship these pagan gods and engage in the sacrificial meal that also had as a part of that celebration and that feasting, engaging in cultic prostitution, right? So that's what was happening, right? That was the fruit and the manifestation of the sinfulness. And so let me offer that as an opportunity to offer a quick um, preview. At some point here in the, in the course of this series, we're going to kind of dive into the concerns and the issues related to sexual immorality, because this won't be the last time it's mentioned in this series. Uh, we're not going to go into it today, just for the sake of time, uh, but we need to address it, number one, because it's very relevant to our culture and our situation, but also because clearly God takes it very seriously, and so should we. And so we'll, we'll address that. One of the things that we discover, at least for our conversation today, is that there are always deeper issues, right? The sexual immorality part is, is kind of a manifestation, typically, of a deeper issue, and a lot of times that deeper issue is related to idolatry, right? A lack of loyalty to the things that God has said or asked us to do, right? Something that leads us in a wayward path. And so you see those two often very intricately connected. In fact, that's the imagery that you often find in the Old Testament for idolatry, right? So, so you see this, this common thread and this commonality, but here's what I want us to kind of focus in on today as what is really the issue, kind of the underlying issue for this church is that they were deceived. They were deceived by false teachings. Regardless of what the teachings were, regardless of the manifestation of it, they were deceived. And maybe this is part of that Pergamum culture that loved to read and loved to have this library and loved new ideas. And so they were just that much more inclined to embrace these new teachings. But clearly, they embraced these new teachings that led them astray. They held on to the teachings of Balaam, held on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so as a result of that deception, there are several implications that we need to consider this morning. The first one is this. Satan will stop at nothing to lead you astray. What he was failing to do in Pergamum and even Smyrna, which was to weaken their faith through hostility, through persecution, through death. See, in those arenas, those external threats, the church was standing strong. So where Satan failed externally, he redirected his focus internally. If I can't destroy them from beyond their walls, I'll destroy them from within. And he gave them false teachings to lead them astray. Satan will stop at nothing. The second implication as a result of this is that we need to know the scriptures. The way that you guard against being led away by false teachings is to know the true teachings. We have to be individuals and we have to be a church that is consistently diving into the holy word of God. We have to know the scriptures. We have to have third implication. We have to have a doctrinal anchor As we search those scriptures, we have to have some sort of doctrinal anchor that guards us from being led astray. When we fail to have those doctrinal anchors, it is that much more easier, it's easier for us to be led astray by false teachings. And so we have to have that. And I would say, again, just as a part of this preview, as I look at it today, one of the constant things the church is wrestling with doctrinally is the question of sexual immorality. And so without those sorts of conversations, without those sorts of, of commitments to really wrestle with those things, we make ourselves that much more susceptible to being led astray 
by these false teachings. But here's the real implication that I think is really worth diving into as it relates to Pergamum. This was also an issue of church accountability. Did you notice it? There are some among you, right? Not, not those who are trying to get in, those from outside cultural voice. No, they're within the church. They're among you. And they're falling victim to these false teachings, which is an indictment on the accountability that didn't exist within this church. Because what that means, if you follow the conclusion, is that brothers and sisters were looking to their left and to their right and saying, other brothers and sisters, go and engage in these sacrificial meals and this practice of prostitution. And they said nothing. And Jesus is holding all of them accountable as a result. Now, why wouldn't they say anything? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, maybe because it was just that socially acceptable. It was that pervasive in the culture where the Satan has his throne that it didn't even register on some of them that it was an issue. Maybe they didn't know the teachings of Jesus clearly enough to, to know that it should be a concern. Maybe they were just fearful of being offensive, right, of hurting someone else's feelings. Who knows what it was, but they were clearly not holding each other accountable. And the resolution for some in the church was to engage in it, and the others was, well, I'm not going to engage in it, but I'm going to tolerate it. So they had weakened any sense of church accountability. So let me make the connection for us. If the power of God is going to be unleashed in a church, it has to be a church that understands what biblical accountability looks like. To guard against these sorts of deceptions. So aren't we glad that we get pictures of biblical accountability? Lord knows the church has failed numerous times in doing this well. But let us call to mind again Galatians 6.1. I think we've preached on this before. I'll just summarize it for us this morning. Right? Whenever you catch a brother or sister in sin, those who live by the Spirit are to restore them gently. But guard yourselves that you may also be tempted. That's a powerful verse. And one to cling to when we have this question of accountability. Right? Here's the first thing I would summarize for us out of that verse in Galatians 6.1. Uh, you're going to catch your brother and sister in sin. And they're going to catch you in it. You know why? Because we're sinful. And as long as we live in this life, it's going to be an issue. So let's, let's be okay with that in the sense that let's not make church a place where you get to come here and pretend to be perfect. Because you're not. Or come here and think that others are perfect. Because they're not. So let's just all acknowledge we're wrestling with sin. And there are going to be times and seasons where we fail. Praise God, we have a place of mercy and grace to catch us. That's what the church is supposed to be. We're going to catch each other in sin. Now, how do we catch it? We live by the Spirit. Doesn't happen if you don't live by the Spirit. You can be legalistic and you can know all the rules. You can know the real avenue is to live by the Spirit. Have the Spirit of God make us aware and sensitive to what those failings and those shortcomings may be. That's how we begin to navigate through meaningful accountability. And when we live by the Spirit and we see each other falling victim to sin, what do we offer? Do we offer judgment? Do we offer shame? Do we offer ridicule, condemnation? 
Alienation? No. What do we offer? We offer restoration. That's what the people of God do. They say, let me restore you in the midst of this failing, in the midst of this struggle. Let me offer you a path of restoration. And how is that path pursued but one that is gentle, compassionate, gracious, understanding? That's loving biblical accountability. And it comes with a word of warning too, right? We have to do this because if we begin to watch our brothers and sisters sin, guess what it's going to do? It's gonna create temptation. Well, because if they can do it, then maybe I can do it. And so we ourselves will be susceptible. And so there's this admonition that if you are going to be that person that offers that voice of restoration and accountability to be on guard, this is the picture of biblical accountability. And so let me ask you this question. Who is that in your life? Who knows you well enough to be able to discern and identify those weak points, those failings, those missteps that are so likely to occur for you? Who is it in your life that you know is living by the Spirit and would be able to walk alongside you and in those moments not condemn or shame or distance, but restore. If you don't have those people in your life, you need them. Who are you providing that to someone else? Who is it in your life that you're able to walk alongside and say, I know this person well enough that I would be able to discern their shortcomings? Are you living by the Spirit so that you'd be able to discern when God is prompting you to offer that restoration? It's not just who's doing it for you, but who are you doing it for as well? Those are the things we have to be pursuing as a church, to pursue this loving accountability. And Jesus offers a marker of a church that's doing it well. It's a church that is filled with repentance. (laughs) That's the remedy, repent, right? And if we're gonna be a church that understands what it means to hold each other accountable, to demonstrate that sort of loyalty to one another and to Christ, then we're gonna be a church that's marked with repentance, to know what it means to constantly course correct in our lives. That, that's something that we should again applaud and celebrate and know how to pursue. And Jesus gives us that word of warning in this letter. Listen, if you don't hold each other accountable, I'll do it for you. I'll come to you with a double-edged sword in my mouth. That's not the sort of like glorious coming to you return sort of thing, like a good hallelujah return. That's like a, I'm coming to judge you. And so it's a very important word of reminder and caution that this is incredibly important. We have to be a church that understands that sort of community and accountability. So let me, let me close with this, right, and, and then we'll be done. If, if I were to think through all those implications and all the different things that you see that are both affirmed and also words of warning for the church in Pergamum, if there was a theme or a thread that stands out to me more than any other, it is this theme of loyalty faithfulness. And and so similar to what we kind of saw transpire here earlier with the children, I'll ask you the same question. What do you think of when you think of the word loyalty? What picture do you have in your mind of loyalty? What does it look like? Before we, we answer that, at least from what I see in the scripture, let's just acknowledge that this is a very consistent theme, not even just for this letter, but really for all these letters. Right? I mean, if you think about Ephesus, the question is, will you be loyal to me like you were at first? To Smyrna, will you be loyal to me even in the face 
of affliction. And now here to Pergamum, right? Will you hold on to me more than you'll hold on to all these other teachings? And that's the word, hold on to, right? You see that within the congregation, people were holding on to the wrong things. Some were holding on to the teachings of Balaam. Some were holding on to the Nicolaitans. Earlier in the letter, when he's talking about them being faithful and not renouncing their name, he says, you remain true to my name. That word remain is the same word as hold on to. So three different times that word is used. Some are holding on to the name of Jesus, some to Balaam, some to the Nicolaitans. And that word gives us the picture of loyalty. It means to seize, to grasp, to arrest. I love that picture. It's this picture of one who's clinging to it with all determination and resolve. And my fear is that we have created environments in today's world when when we think about our loyalty to Jesus, we've loosened our grip. And as a result, we are increasingly susceptible to to wayward distractions or deceits or whatever it may be because we're not clinging as tightly as we should. And so the question for us is to really evaluate our sense of loyalty to this gospel. What does it really look like? Let, let me give you an illustration to, to try to bring it home for us. Um, my youngest son is four years old, and anytime I run errands with my youngest son, I'm reminded of this childhood instinct that whenever you get into a parking lot, it is to run. And I don't know what it is about children that look in a parking lot and are like, let's go, man, let's just do this. Uh, and it always creates a panic in a parent because it's like watching a real-life Frogger game unfold, for those of you that ever played Frogger. Um, and, and you panic a little bit because you're like, this is not good. And so a common scene in a parking lot uh, with young children is to watch parents constantly grasping at their children, trying to get their hand really quick. And the times that I've done that for my son and I've grabbed his hand, you know what he does? He just fights it, constantly pulling away. No, let me go. And he just wants to go on his own. I wonder how many of us that's what our loyalty to Jesus looks like. That we're these children who walk through this parking lot of life and all we want to do is just run and try to navigate past these obstacles and these challenges on our own, on our own abilities and God is grasping and grasping at us and when he finally gets a hold of us here and there, all we do is resist it, keep trying to pull away and that our loyalty is really best defined as God's doing everything he can to hold on to us and we're doing very little to hold on to him. Contrast that to those tender moments that parents experience when a child walks up next to them unexpectedly and just puts their hand in theirs just because they love them. Or those moments those children grab tightly to their parents' hands and ask them to be swung up into the air and they give out these shouts of joy that fill the air. Or those moments when their children are scared because it's dark or there's a storm or whatever the occasion, and so they cling tight to mom or to dad because they know that's the one, tra- the one hand they can trust the most. Wouldn't that be the better picture of loyalty for us to pursue? To hold tightly to the hands of our Father because we love him, because we know it's only with him that we find the true joy that our souls long for, because even in the darkest moments of life, 
Whenever we face these storms, we know his hand is the only hand that we can truly trust to get us through. So whose hand are you holding, church? What are you holding on to? My hope and my prayer is that each and every one of us would reach up and grab hold of the wounded and scarred hands that bled and died for you and for me and forever remain true to the great and holy name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess there are so many times where we reach and we grasp for the wrong things, where we are led astray, driven often by our own ambitions, our sinful nature, anything that entices and appeals to us that is not of you. Father, we confess that and we want to repent. We want meaningful change. And so for all of us that are gathered here, individually, Father, if there are things that we're holding on to that are not of you, help us to let go. Collectively as a church, Father, may we be a place that understands loving accountability, a people that know that we are not going to be perfect, and yet we constantly seek to live by the Spirit and listen to the Spirit. That this would be a place of restoration, God, of grace, compassion, and gentleness. God, help us to discern what is true, what is good, what is lovely, what is right. Help us to set our mind on such things. Father, we know you do everything you can to hold on to us. May we do everything we can to hold on to you. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.